Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. If you're new to Harvest, my name is Dave. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here, and I want to welcome you to our service this morning. Um, if you are joining us for the first time today, we've been working our way through a series on the book of James, which is a letter written to the scattered church by a guy named James who happened to be the younger flesh and blood brother of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we've been looking at this letter because it's an interesting perspective on the faith written by somebody who grew up thinking of our Lord Jesus as his big brother. And you can imagine what a view of Christianity he would have gotten because he watched somebody who was God live out this life and embody everything that we learn about at church. And so we want to look at this letter of James. And so we're now in chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, and the title of the message is The Royal Law. Uh, I, I'm a lover of words, by the way. I love words, and this room has become... I, I, I'm, I can hardly concentrate because I'm looking around. There's all these really great words hanging around. So I, forgive me if you see me space out and stare at these every now and then. Um, <clears throat> let's read the text together. This is James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder... You have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the word of God. The woman in this photo is named Sharonda Jones. And I won't debate the merits of her particular case, but um, she's incarcerated right now and serving a life sentence without parole. When she was arrested, she was a first-time offender, and she was arrested for conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine, which comes at a very stiff penalty on the particular year that she was arrested. She was arrested and incarcerated 14 years ago. She was 32 years old at the time, and she had a nine-year-old daughter that she has not been able to watch grow up. And she is now serving that life sentence in Carswell, Texas, in a facility there. If you're interested, you can find out more about the case. I don't want to argue about whether she should be serving a life sentence for a first-time drug offense or not. But here's here's the reason I'm bringing up her case that since the time she was incarcerated, uh, when she was tried and sentenced, there was a 100 to 1 ratio of of, uh, differential in sentencing for regular cocaine versus crack cocaine because the government was really wanting to crack down on the distribution of crack. So if she had been caught selling regular cocaine, 
not a big deal. But because she was caught selling crack cocaine, it was a hundred times the penalty. And at that point, there was a strict minimum sentencing guideline that gave her a life sentence. Those laws have been reevaluated very significantly today. And if she were arrested today, she would be serving a much, much smaller sentence. And so there's a, a grassroots movement of people to say she should have paid the price for her crimes, but that the, the price she's paying is disproportionately high. And the reason I mention her case is because she's a good illustration. Now, she's a human being. She's more than an illustration. But her story reminds me that the law by which you are judged makes a very, very big difference in the sentence that you have to end up carrying out. Had she been tried today, her life would be very different because the laws today are very different than laws on the day that she went to jail. As Christians, I really believe that we also live with two laws in front of us all the time. And the law that you subscribe to, the law that you believe you live under and will be judged by, makes a world of difference in how you experience what it is to follow Jesus Christ. Now, much of chapter 2 of the letter of James is dominated by this subject of favoritism. And that's a little weird to me because of all the fish that James, the brother of Jesus, could be frying, all the problems in the church, it's, it's as if in the midst of all these other problems in the world, he's obsessing over favoritism. I don't know about you, but if I were writing a letter to the scattered church, I don't know if that would have been my major theme. But for some reason, James is obsessing over favoritism, and it's, it's, there's every indication he had witnessed this particular sin firsthand, and it was a deep, deep source of grief to his heart, and by extension, I believe, to God's heart. And so we have to, we have to explore this question, why is James so obsessive over this problem of favoritism. Why, of all the things he could talk about, is he belaboring this particular point? And in order to understand that, we do have to acknowledge the fact that while we have one God, there are two laws that we live in the tension of as followers of God. Which law you live under will make the difference between whether you are crushed by the law or set free by it. Now, here's the thing. Both of these laws reveal God's character. They reveal God's nature, his attributes, his beauty. There's nothing wrong with either law. Both laws are beautiful. Both laws perfectly reflect who our God is, but both laws don't affect us the same way. So let me describe these two laws. I'll give you a little roadmap ahead, okay? I'm going to describe the two laws. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what it feels like to live in the tension of those two laws, and then I'm going to give you an exhortation that repeats the exhortation James gives us, okay? So the, the first law is most, the most common, most familiar law that we might think of. It's the moral law. James is writing to a, a primarily Jewish audience. Um, they were Jews who had followed Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but Judaism was still pretty much the, the window through which they looked out at the world. They understood that Jesus was their Messiah, but Judaism still clung very deeply to the way they thought about their relationship with God. And the moral law, some people would call it the Mosaic law, it is basically the laws of do's and don'ts. If we want to break it down simply, it's that law that says this is what God wants us to be like. 
It's how he wants society to work. Here's how he wants us to act. Now, this law reflects God's holiness and justice. If you're one of those people, and I'd love to just see a poll. How many of you have a very finely tuned sense of fairness and justice? Like the one thing that knocks you off kilter is when you see unfairness or injustice happening, it makes you nuts. Okay. And, I, and when you have children, you'll see that your kids are a little different too. Some kids, they can't play a game because somebody's not being fair. And once somebody's not being fair, it's over. They can't function anymore because their sense of justice is so finely tuned. And that does reflect and reveal something of God's nature because God does care how we act. He does care about justice. He does care about fairness. He cares about people taking responsibility for what they do. He cares about all of it. And so the moral law is not something that's meant to just crush us. It's meant to reveal to us, this is our God. When you look at the moral law by which Israel had to live, you saw a picture of the God that we follow today. The moral law describes not just what we should and should not do, but it describes how God acts. And that's why when Jesus, who is God, became a human being and dwelt among us, it describes exactly how Jesus acted. Jesus, in his earthly life, lived out this law. He was the only one who's ever done it. He's the only one who ever can. But when Jesus walked among us, what we saw was the law being lived out in flesh and blood for the first time in human history, right before our eyes. And then it also describes how then, as a consequence, God wants us to act. It's the way we would want to act if we could, but we can't always do it, can we? This law if we were able to hold to it, describes a beautiful, compelling picture of a world we would actually want to live in. It would describe a world that if we could perfectly live the way God commanded, we would live in a just, kind, generous, fair, compassionate, safe world. We would live in a world where you would never have to go blip, blip to open your car. You just leave it open all the time because no one would mess with your stuff. You could let your children play out in the streets until well past dark and no one would mess with them because that's just the world we live in. If everybody did what God commands perfectly, without exception, the world would be a beautiful place. It'd be exactly the world we'd want to live in. But you see, the problem there is if 99.9% of us live that way and there's one rotten eggs out there, it's a threat. We don't live in a world where everybody is willing or able to live perfectly by this moral law. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, if you keep the royal law in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, it's a tip-off, a sign that you, you, you sin and are convicted by which law? This moral law that says this is not the way to act. And when you... When you commit the sin of favoritism, you are indicted by this moral law because that's exactly not how God wants us to act towards other people. It is not the way he has treated us, and it is not the way he expects us to treat other people. So the moral law reveals a picture of God, but it's also then, because we're sinful, a frustrating picture of God because it describes a God and a way of living that is somehow outside of our reach, isn't it? Here, here's a, an illustration of what it's like 
to try to live according to the moral law. How many of you guys play this game? <clears throat> Do you know what this game is? Flappy Bird, okay? It's the, the newest version of um, digital crack. In fact, the guy who invented this game was making money hand over fist. Tens of thousands of dollars a day just for putting out this game and getting ad revenue. But the crazy thing is he voluntarily took the game off the market because he was growing concerned about the high level of addiction and anger and broken equipment as people threw their phones at the wall in frustration. Um, It's crazy what this game did. When you look at the game, you think, huh, what's the big deal? What could be so hard about tapping a screen and making this stupid bird fly through these little... But if you ever played it, it makes your sphincter just clench, doesn't it? You just go, why is this so hard and why can't I stop playing it? And there's this tension the whole time you're playing. It's supposed to be a game, but it doesn't feel like a game. It feels like hell on earth. It feels like a bad job. Right? And there you are... Crud! And you keep, and think about how you feel when you're playing that game, because that's what the moral law feels like. You're constantly on, and here's the thing about it. It doesn't seem like it should be all that hard. And for a while, you can really keep it going. You can even get a pretty good streak going. Who here thinks they got the highest score in Flappy Bird? Just shout out your score. Five. All right. That's, that's five better than me. All right. So you can keep a pretty good streak going. But the minute you let down your guard, the minute someone walks in and goes, hey, what's up? You're like, oh, dude, don't say hi to me. I'm playing Flappy Birds. I had my high score going because the minute you take your eyes off the screen, you will crash and burn and you will have game over. That's like, that's my score right there. <laughs> high score of one. Um, this is what it feels like. To see the beauty and the purity of God's way of living, his moral code, and say, that's what I'm going to try to live by. And as you set out to do it, you might enjoy an amazingly long streak of success. But I guarantee you, you will not keep that streak going forever. Sooner or later, you're going to take your eyes off the screen. Why? Because as beautiful as the code is, we are simply incapable of keeping it. Now, that's the bad news part. You've got to confront that because if you don't confront it, the cross of Jesus Christ isn't good news for anything. It's not worth anything. See, the cross of Jesus is not some value-added accessory, a little chain around your neck to accentuate your wardrobe. It is the only way we can deal with this reality that as beautiful as God's way of living is, we cannot hope to do it. There is a way to actually live by the moral code, and that is to lie to yourself and to everyone else and delude yourself into thinking, I'm pretty much doing it. Do you remember that young man who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. This I have done. What else? <laughs> and the guy, Jesus is like, you're an idiot. I gave you the most impossible standard. You're like, yeah, I did that. Now what? You didn't. You can't. The only way you can do it is to fool yourself into believing you're doing it and you're lying. Commentator John MacArthur, with whom I don't always agree on everything, he he gave a very interesting um, illustration of how the law works. It's like a, a piece of glass, a glass window that you break with a hammer. 
And if you touch one part of that window with a hammer, you break the whole of it. The only way to believe that you are doing well according to the standard of the moral law is to lie to yourself. Because as James says, if you keep the whole thing and yet stumble at just one point, this is the nature of the moral code. When you're caught selling drugs, you can't say, yeah, but I never speed. Well, that's great for you, but that's not what this is about right now. You may have kept 99% of the law, but you're going to jail for the 1% you messed up on. That's the nature of the moral code, is it's unrelenting, it's unforgiving. It is constantly showing you, you can't do this. Now, hang on with me, don't go home, because that's horrible news. If I ended there, I should get fired today. I mean, that, what is that for a sermon? But we have to confront that that's the reality. That if you break one part of it, you've broken the whole thing. That for the one time that bird just touched the edge of the barrier, the game is over. You want to make a billion dollars? Make a version of Flappy Birds where you get a second chance. Billion dollar idea right there. I want royalties once you put that out there. But that's not the way it works, is it? And so James says, that's one law, and if you try to live under it, you will, you will break your back, and you will crash and burn. But he says, there's this other law, which he calls the royal law. And he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and he's quoting Leviticus 19.18 here, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. He calls it the royal law. Another way to talk about it is it's the law of the king or it's the law of the kingdom or it's the king of all laws. This is the most important thing on the heart of God for human beings is that we would love our neighbor as ourself. And by extension, the, the thing he assumes every good, good Jew knew is we would also love God first above everything else with all that we have. This echoes the greatest commandment which Jesus gave when somebody, a teacher of the law, asked him, so, you're supposed to be this really smart guy, you have a, a direct line to God. What does God want from us? There's like 650 laws. It's too confusing. So I ask you, if we could reduce it down to one thing, what does God most want from us? And without skipping a beat, Jesus answers, love him with everything you've got. And then love others the way you love yourself. It's profound that the one verb that Jesus uses to describe the greatest desire of God's heart for us is love. I know some of us may not be trying to strain against the moral law, but here's another way that some of us lose our way, is we try to overthink Christianity so that it becomes just another intellectual playground in which we are growing in knowledge but our hearts are dead. And that might describe where you are today as well, is your heart is slowly fading out. Because in the midst of all the things you know about God, somewhere along the way, your capacity to really love him. And let's not parse out the Greek and the Hebrew of love. I mean, you know what love is. You love your kid, you love your spouse, you love your friends, you love your mommy and daddy. You know what love is, and somewhere along the way, for all of your intellect, that's lost. When you think about God, that's not the first feeling that wells up in you is, I love him. 
And what James is saying is this is what God most wants for us and from us. It's not that we would keep our hands clean, but that we would love him and be loved by him. That is the most paramount desire of God's heart. It's not to watch us perform like circus monkeys. It's not to say that how we live has no bearing on his heart or that he doesn't care about standards, but that if we could reduce it to the one thing he most wants, he said, in the midst of everything else you're struggling with, grow to love me, love your fellow man, and to receive from me the great love I'm constantly trying to pour out into your life. The greatest commands Jesus gave us to love God with everything and to love others as we love ourselves is actually a great summary of the Ten Commandments. The kids gave us this wonderful preview to the sermon this morning, didn't they? The the first four commandments are this. Have no other gods before me. Worship no idols. Do not take my name in vain and remember the Sabbath. Those are the grown-up ways of saying it. I thought the kids put it much better. Okay, I really love the way the kids did it. I wish I could bring them back in here. And if you take the first four commands, what you, what you notice about them is they have everything to do with our vertical relationship with God. So you can summarize them with this great command that Jesus gave us that the Jews recited every day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then when you take the remaining six commands, honor your mom and dad, don't kill people out of hate Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't envy what others have, but be content with what you have. When you look at those things, they have everything to do with the horizontal relationship that we have with each other. And that if we had some way of overcoming these six common flaws in the way we interact with each other, think about how many human relationships would be repaired. What a different world we'd live in if people honor their parents if they didn't kill or hate one another, if everybody just stuck with their own honey, how great would that be? If you kept what you had and let everybody else keep what they had, told the truth. Well, you know, unless your wife asked you if these jeans make her look chubby, but... And then do not covet. Imagine what that would do to human relationships if we had some way of dealing with this. And so Jesus then gives a summary and he says, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Scott McKnight, who teaches over at at, um, North Park College, just down the street about 40 minutes, um, he calls this the Jesus Creed. He says, this is what every good Jew knew, but Jesus perfectly embodied and gave it a whole new kind of power and prominence in the life of, of the Christian, the Christ follower. This is the royal law, is that we should love God and we should love others the way we love ourselves. Here's what what Jesus did, and here's what James is doing. He's saying, you've got this whole complex system of do's and don'ts, rules that reflect who God is, but he has this way of taking the whole thing and reducing it, simplifying it to this. He frames everything in the terms of a relationship. And he says, here's what it means. Don't remember the 80,000 things you're supposed to do and not do. Just remember this golden rule. Love God with everything you have and love others the way you already love yourself. And the reason that's so important is because if we try to live this way, you know, you can say, 
you can argue, well, you're just replacing one law with another. Now I have to worry not about doing the million things, but I'm always stressing out over, do I love you enough? Am I loving God enough? We don't want that either. So here's what we learn from Scripture, is that we love because He first loved us. Our capacity to love God and love anyone else is predicated on our understanding that we can't love unless we first receive and acknowledge the great love of God for us. And so this is really what he's saying. The royal law is built on this. You have to first realize that before you do a single thing to please God, he has done everything to draw you to himself. That he has loved you way better than you will ever love him. And that's where the relationship starts. It doesn't start with you saying, I'm going to get my act together and love God better. It starts with realizing just how much he has loved you first. And because he has loved us, everything we do to love him and love others is a response to the love we first received. Now, if you're bored by this, it's maybe because it's so familiar But examine if this describes the way you follow Jesus today and the way you interact with other people. Would others who know you say that one of the leading characteristics of you is that you're very loving? People might say, oh man, they're really just, they're really fair, they're totally into this or that. But how many people would say of you, when I think of them, the first thought I have is, man, they're really loving. They're really loving. And if that's not your experience, then I think James's invitation would be to say, maybe it's because somewhere along the way you lost sight of God's great love for you and you've turned this journey into something else. Maybe you're trying to win God's favor by knowing a lot about him, accomplishing a lot for him. But along the way, you lost sight of this. The relationship started with God first loving you. And if you receive that, you can love him back and love others as well. So we've got these two laws in tension. One reveals how God is in his moral perfection and says this is how it would be if we didn't have this problem of sin. And the other says that there is the problem of sin and yet God can allow us to move on because he has set us free by loving us. These are the two laws we constantly live under. And listen, I'm going to give you the right answer in class. This is going to be on the test. Here's the right answer. The better law to live under... The better law to be judged by is the law that is called the royal law because that's what James says is a law that leads to freedom. How does any law lead to freedom? Well, it does if it begins with our own emancipation. If the reason we can't ever be perfect is is taken care of right at the onset by God just releasing us. That's the, the royal law that we're supposed to live under. But the thing is, we flip and flop constantly between these two laws. I know I'm not supposed to live by the moral law, and I'm not supposed to hold others accountable to just that moral law. I'm supposed to be gripped by the royal law to love God and to love others as myself. Let me give you an illustration of what it's like to live in the tension of these two laws and how to come out of it. Um, I... (laughs) I'm not even Chinese, but I love that man. I'm so thankful for him. I'm so proud of him. That's Jeremy Lin, and I don't know how many of you have seen Lin Sanity. Okay. All right. If you're Asian and haven't seen Lin Sanity, shame on you. Hit yourself. All right. <laughs> it's a great film. It's inspiring. And I watched it with my son Elijah recently, 
And you know, if you know anything at all about my son Elijah, he's a basketball nut. He, today we're trying to get out to church. He got out to the garage 10 seconds before me, and he's out in the driveway shooting two baskets real quick before we have to go. I'm like, you got a problem. But inside I'm like, I'm so glad he has that problem. It's, it's kind of a great problem to have. So we're watching this film, Linsanity. And what I realized is there's two ways I could watch this film with Elijah. One way to watch it would reflect the law, the moral law, that, that leads to bondage and captivity. And the other way, it would reflect the royal law, which leads to freedom and hope. So what if I watched this movie this way? I said, Elijah, I want you to watch Jeremy Lin and every one of his abilities and his achievements. I want you to do the same thing. I want you to get to the state championship in high school. I want you to hit the winning three-pointer. I want you to get into Harvard, play basketball for them, elevate their entire program, bring the Ivy League onto the NCAA map. And then I want you to graduate high college with, the, what, with some of the best statistics ever that year for a college graduate. And then eventually I want you to get into MBA, and I want you to be able to dunk. I want you to get that dish-off pass just right. I want you to watch everything he does and can do, and I want you to perfectly imitate him. Now, how would Elijah receive that guidance, if you could call it guidance? Well, here's part of the problem. Jeremy Lin is six foot three. Elijah is like three foot six. I mean, he's a, <laughs> so try as he might, that standard is going to lead to a lot of frustration. Because he can try to be Jeremy Lin, but he can't be Jeremy Lin. There is a fundamental genetic problem he inherited from me, which will preclude any possibility. Listen, if he had John Warden's genes, maybe. <laughs> Jeff Jin's genes, maybe. He got, look at me. Look, look. I'm like 5'5". Five, five. I used to be 5'6". I shrank. <laughs> so what's, what hope does he really have to do exactly what Jeremy Lin does? And yet that's the way some of us try to live our lives, even following Jesus. I see the perfection of this way of living, and I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try to be perfect, just as God is perfect. And you might get a pretty good streak going, but I promise you, if that's what you're out to do, you will fail, and it will lead to despair and bondage. And at some point, because you've made it about that, you're going to want to quit and say, this is impossible. Who can do this? But there's another way to watch insanity. And that is, look, son, let's just get this out of the way right away. You ain't never going to do the stuff that he did. Okay? But here's the thing. I want you to watch Jeremy's heart and character. I don't think you can do exactly what he has done or achieve what he has achieved. But I want you to see the way he approaches the different things that come up in his life. He's not perfect, okay? But I want you to pay attention to another side of this film. Not what he achieved, but what he's like. Watch how he hangs on and believes even when his NBA dream looks like it's about to get extinguished. Look at how humble he is when the guy guarding the door at Madison Square Garden won't let him in because he thinks he's a trainer and this is a player's entrance. Watch how humble he is when Kobe Bryant totally disses him and he holds his tongue. Watch how patient and gracious he is when institutionalized prejudice is aimed at him. 
that if he were any other ethnicity, he would have been drafted easily in the first round with his numbers. But because he was the wrong fit, the wrong color, the wrong race, no one would give him the respect he deserved. And watch the way he handles that. Watch how hard he works, even in the D-League. While others are wallowing in self-pity because they were put down and demoted, watch how hard he works. You can't be Jeremy Lin, but you can, appro- you can approach the challenges in your own life with the same kind of heart that Jeremy had. I think this is what James is trying to tell us. is If you set out to imitate God in his moral perfection, you will give up sooner or later. But if you set out to see how God loves and say with all my heart, In this earthly life, that's what I want to emulate. I want to love him the way he's loved me. And I want to love others the way that I'm supposed to, the way he has loved me. If you set out to live that way, rather than despair and bondage, you will begin to experience hope and freedom. The moral law will lead us constantly to see our inabilities and our imperfections. The royal law will lead us constantly to see God's abilities and God's perfection. Now, I'm not just giving some theological framework here. I'm telling you, this is the reason that Christianity is so hard for so many people is because they're chasing the wrong goal and not realizing how much freedom there is and being saved by God. Why do we call it saved when we feel like slaves? How you understand Christianity makes all the difference. There will come a day when Jesus will return and complete the work of our perfection. Until that day, it matters that we see God's standard, but how we get there is supremely important. You will not get there by sheer effort. You will get there by being released, forgiven, and set free to love God and live like him, even in your fallenness and imperfection. It's how we get up every time we fall. And so here's what James says. Speak and act like those who are going to be judged, not by the moral law, but by the law that gives freedom. At the end, James says this one phrase that I think is very haunting. And I think it's very true of the way God treats us, but it's also very true of the way we ought to live among others. And that is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How how shall I put it? It's as if we were arrested, caught red-handed, All the evidence is stacked against us. We have done wrong. There is no disputing that. And there we are at court, sitting there before the judge. And at that moment, there are two things that have to happen. One is that we have to have justice done to us, right? you got to own up to what you did. You can't just erase it, control Z, and pretend it didn't happen. And so justice is important. And because God is just, you can't just bypass that. That's what judgment is. It's assigning blame to where blame belongs and saying that is not right and you know you've done wrong. 
But here's what James reminds us. At the moment where we should stand trial and be judged and convicted and condemned, at that same very moment, if you are in Christ, you do not have to pay the penalty for that conviction, but God's mercy in Jesus Christ steps in and defends you, advocates for you, so that even though the judgment is true, and there's no denying it, someone else has paid the penalty, and mercy triumphs over that judgment. This is especially important for those of you who grew up, just couldn't stand when someone cheated in a game or did something unfair. Listen, we all know that God is just, and he's going to eventually, you can't escape the long arm of the law. But do you also realize that God, when he looks at you, doesn't see everything you've done wrongly and call you to account for it without protection? That at the very moment you understand what you've done, mercy steps in and triumphs over that judgment. And I want to just close with a story that I think beautifully illustrates how this principle then plays out in human society. Many of you may recall back in 1994, uh, for about 100 days in the late spring to early summer, or midsummer, in the, the African nation of Rwanda, there was this horrible season of genocide. Racial, ethnic tension, tribal tensions had been mounting for some time, and that powder keg exploded for about 100 days. And I, I want you to just understand this. This is the picture. Next-door neighbors were hacking each other's arms and limbs off with machetes. I mean, this is not just some weird invading force. This is like, hey, your kids and my kids play on the same travel team, but you're from a different tribe, and I, I've had it with you people. And you take a machete, and you come up to your next-door neighbor's house, and you go, whoop, and just chop their arms off. You stab them. This was happening all over the country. Anywhere from 800,000 to a million people were killed during this 100 days of violence. An estimated quarter of a million women were raped, and the nation, after the dust settled, was in ruins. It was as if an entire country was going through post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it was crazy. Everybody just kind of, the nerves are like this, because think about it. That kid's dad, who you watch at every basketball game, just killed somebody next door. Now he's just walking around, you're like, what do I do? This is insanity. It doesn't even feel like the real world. And in that aftermath, some 120,000 people were arrested and incarcerated, waiting to stand trial. And by the way, the jail system was only built to hold about 45,000 people. So it was a pretty bad situation all around. And everyone knew this is going to make a bad thing even worse if we don't deal with all of this. Justice has to be done. I mean, you, have to, you can't just go, oh, oh, my bad. Sorry about all that killing. Sorry about those million people who, were, who lost their lives. You can't just gloss over it, but a nation needed to repair. What was the answer? Well, the answer they came up with, there were some trials, some tribunals, some, for the high-level cases, there was, there was an official judicial process that was still running. But they came up with the, this idea that borrowed from an old tribal tradition, they called them gachacha courts. They were village-based courts convened and, and, and led by people who were elected judges from that tribe or that village. And they would sit and listen to the case. They would try these people. They would call them to give testimony. They would call witnesses. It worked just like a court, but they were doing it in the very neighborhood where they would say, I'm standing trial in front of the very neighbors whose family members I hacked to death just a month ago. 
the international community was filled with critics. There were a lot of people who said, this is crazy. Right now, you don't need some kind of village court. What you really need is a strong hand that says this cannot stand. The people who are guilty should be punished to the full extent of the law. They should have the book thrown at them. They should be locked away and never let out. Many of them should be put to death themselves. And there was an outcry in the international community saying, what we need is justice so that this never happens again. But the leaders that that happened to be in place at that time had a different view. They said, we don't just need justice. Our nation needs to heal. And so in these courts, the way it worked is if you would stand before your community and fully own the crimes you'd committed, if you would beg the community for forgiveness and demonstrate real contrition, your sentence would be commuted It would be lessened so that after a short sentence, you could re-enter society living among the very people who are the survivors of your victims. And you would begin to ask for and receive forgiveness and rebuild this broken society. These courts ran for about 18 years. 11,000 such courts were convened all over the country some 400,000 people stood trial. Many of them who were falsely accused were acquitted. Many others stood in tears before those people and said, in the season of madness, we were gripped by hatred. And I stand before this community and tell you, I know what I did, and I beg you for your forgiveness. And the people of that village stood together and listened, and they granted that forgiveness. Some measure of justice was had. They still had to carry out a sentence. But then an amazing thing happened. As these people were forgiven, they re-entered life. And there was tension, no doubt about it. But they were beginning to live again among the very people they had brutalized. And healing started to happen. Almost every single Rwandan adult participated in one of these courts at some form, some level. And today, many years after those atrocities, Rwanda is a nation that's starting to heal. I visited Uganda a couple years ago, and I taught at a pastor's conference, and one of the pastors who came was a really wonderful man. He had walked to this conference from Rwanda. (laughs) I whined about how tight the seats were. I didn't get an aisle seat. This dude walked two countries over to come to the conference. And I just sat with him for an hour just asking him all these questions about what it's like to minister and live in a country that had witnessed that. And what he said was, it was not the justice that repaired the country, but it was the mercy given by those who were the only ones who could give it, the victims and their survivors. That's what healed the country. And what he said was, in this unfolding story, the word of God was proven true, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And I want you to know that the view God has of you when he's standing in heaven watching you flail about and fail is not a desire to just throw the lightning rod of justice at you. But the heart of our Father God is a heart of mercy and a desperate desire to extend that mercy to have you receive it so you can move forward again. This is our God. This is our faith. This is what allows us in our imperfection to just keep moving forward. 
And I think it's right for us to repeat the words of James. Live as people who are not going to stand judgment under the moral law, but under the law that gives freedom. That one day you will stand before a righteous holy God and say, I screwed up beyond all imagination. Everything you say, I did. But at that very moment of great failure and condemnation, Jesus will stand in front of you and say, yes, but you also receive the mercy I extended. And you're free. This is what the Christian faith is built on. Let's bow in prayer together. It's entirely possible that in the course of studying and preparing for sermons at this church over the last 20 years and perhaps over the next 20, I'll probably get some things wrong. Smarter people than me may realize every error I make. But I know one thing that I can say with great confidence is that what God wants for us and from us It's not a perfect record. It's not moral perfection. It's to receive the great love he extends. And then to love him and to love one another with that same kind of love. You can get a lot of things wrong, but you can't get that wrong. Or you will make this faith something it's not. And it will crush you under its weight. The gospel is good news. And good news is supposed to fill you with hope. It's supposed to lead to freedom, not bondage and despair. So if your faith doesn't feel like a hope-filled, freedom-granting faith, reconsider what you believe this is about. If we really understood the gospel, we'd smile more. There would be a spring in our step. We'd bounce back from failure very differently than we do. So here's the good news. God knows that you and I are imperfect. God also knows that his son is perfect. And standing between us and him is his perfect son speaking up for us every time we fail. And every failure, he covers us in his victory. In every weakness, he covers us in his strength. This is our God. This is our Savior. So I'm going to invite you to take a minute and just receive this great love and mercy God is extending to you. Stop playing a spiritual game of Flappy Bird. Be set free. So let's take a moment and just pray out to God and receive what He's extending.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.